I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast today. Oh, deep breath. We're back to Matthew. (laughs) As you recall, we've been back and forth between Matthew and John this year. And so we're back to Matthew and um, we're going to be talking about Matthew 9 verses 9 through 13 and then a separate pericope 18 through 26. Thanks, Christy. Yeah, our gospel lesson for this week comes from Matthew's account of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. As we observed earlier when we were discussing the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew tends to focus on Jesus' authoritative and powerful words of healing and salvation. And we, we saw that, you know, in the fact that, you know, right off the bat, you know, Matthew's gospel starts not with an account of his ministry, but with the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. But ne- what we're going to see is, in comparison, particularly with Mark's gospel, we're going to find that the way in which Matthew uh, edits these stories tends to focus on Jesus' authoritative and powerful words of healing and salvation as a manifestation of the kingdom of God. And um, it's it's an interesting dynamic when you, when you see that in comparison mm-hmm. with Mark's gospel. When I think guilty... Um, I've tended to probably um, harmonize those myself, so I haven't seen this nuance that you're going to pull out today. Um, so I'm really excited to have you all listen to these 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 differences that really make it this particularly special, I guess. Or yeah, well, basically, what happens is that Matthew removes a lot of the narrative details yeah. that we saw in in, in right. Mark's gospel, and and just puts most of the focus on the the word that Jesus pronounces. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very, very interesting. Okay. So um, I do think this is a little bit of a complicated combination for the Revised Common Lectionary. I would say awkward. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Uh, And, of course, we've seen this many times already, that the the lectionary only takes excerpts from what is a longer narrative, and Mm -hmm. and really all of this is a much longer narrative. Right. Um, Chapter 8 and Chapter 9. Um, uh, constitute the the first parts of of Matthew's narration of the Galilean ministry. The context for the selection this week is Jesus' ministry with authority that affects forgiveness of sins. For example, Mm -hmm. chapter 9 begins with the story of the healing of the paralytic, Uh, healing, repentance, and discipleship. And so again, this is how this is one of the ways in which um, Matthew focuses on Jesus' word. Mm-hmm. Jesus' word affects um, forgiveness, right. healing, repentance, and discipleship. And one of the distinctive features of the way Na- Matthew narrates Jesus' ministry is that he leaves out many details, as I said earlier, that we find in Mark's gospel. And as a result, um, uh, we, we have a focus on the way that each story functions as a witness to the saving act of God in Christ through the lens of the life, death, and resurrection mm-hmm. of Jesus. And I'm quoting from Gene Boring in his Gospel of Matthew in the New Interpreter's mm-hmm. Bible there. And I think that's something that's important to see. You know, we, we oftentimes read the Gospels with the assumption that they're, that they come from, these stories come from the life of Jesus. Right. Well, they do and they don't because they also come from the life of the church. Mm-hmm. And that's so, true. so there's this other dynamic in there that, that um, you know, the evangelist is, is writing from, from his own perspective, but also also reflecting the perspective mm-hmm. of the church, a, a church which is decades past 
the resurrection, right? right? right. So they kind of already know the end of the story, so, right. so, so to speak. Yeah. They've heard about the cross and the resurrection right. and the ascension, and, and they know that Jesus did these things. You know, I'm going off tangent a little bit, but I was, I've been thinking a lot about story lately Mm -hmm. and about how we hear and for example when we do a funeral how someone will tell us a story but it brings them so much comfort when we retell the story back Mm -hmm. and it reminds me a little bit here people in the church know these stories Mm -hmm. these in particular Mm -hmm. but here we are hearing it back or reading it back and i think i think it's It's the same dynamic of reading scripture today Mm -hmm. you know we read stories that we've heard all of our lives Mm -hmm. and yet it is still something that is meaningful to us right and when we hear a slight told by a slightly different voice Mm -hmm. we do get a different emphasis and so yeah i that's it's actually really i think it's powerful yeah i hope so (laughs) Uh, i I mean i i do i i the (laughs) I think story is powerful. Yeah, it is. And, uh, it is, definitely. Um, again, you, you know that these Christians there have heard these stories mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. Um, so now they hear them again with mm-hmm. some of those details left out, but other things maybe emphasized Highlighted. by yep. leaving some of those out. Right, right? right, exactly. So, yeah, part of the part of the work of the evangelist was not only selecting which traditions they would, were going to recount, but also the way in which they recounted mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... Where do we begin today? Well, our lesson for this week begins with the calling of, quote-unquote, Matthew, the tax collector, and right away we have a problem. Uh, Mark (laughs) recounts this story with reference to Levi, the son of Alphaeus, Mm -hmm. who is the tax collector in Mark 2.14, and Luke simply refers to him as Levi, not Levi, the Mm -hmm. son of Alphaeus. So, you know, and only Matthew mentions the name of this person as Matthew. So, of course, two, uh, two options are available for harmonizing this problem. You know, you could just say Matthew and Levi are the same person. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of people tend to uh, just make that assumption. Right. But there is no reference, no other reference to an apostle or a disciple named Levi. Mm-hmm. No other reference to an apostle or disciple named Levi. And calling narratives like this one tend to refer to the twelve. And there's no mention of a Levi in any of the list of the apostles in mm-hmm. Matthew chapter 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, or even the one in Acts chapter 1. All name Matthew as one of the original yeah, apostles right, or disciples. Right. Now, the other option for harmonizing is to see these as two separate events, right? One calling Levi and one calling Matthew, Matthew. right? Um, but the details of the, event, of the event are so closely parallel that there's no question that it is the same story that all the evangelists are recounting. I think the most likely explanation is that the Matthew who is behind the first gospel was troubled by the tradition of calling uh, of the calling of Levi, a tax collector, because there was no apostle by that name in the gospel tradition. That he would have chosen Matthew, though, is strange. And, you know, I, I realize some might think he's referring to himself, but we don't really know that. Um, only, I think we, we should also note that only the first gospel identifies Matthew as a tax collector in the list of apostles. None of the other lists of apostles identify Matthew as a tax collector. So, huh. you know, this is, this is Matthew's take on this. But all the other lists of apostles mention a James, the son of Alphaeus. So if he were, if, if, if he were going to identify Levi, the son of Alphaeus, with somebody, you'd think he would choose a, a James, another son of Alphaeus, right? Mm-hmm. But he doesn't. So uh, one thought is that perhaps 
there was a Matthew who was connected to the community of the first disciple. And so that might have influenced uh, mm-hmm. the evangelist. Davies and Allison conclude, we must remain quite uncertain about this. And I think that's... Uh, to say the least, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, well, now, and I will mention, of course, uh, during the Reformation, they just understood this with Matthew. They, and Matthew, the writer of the gospel. Yeah. Um, well, there were centuries of church tradition right, behind they, that. It just wasn't something they questioned. And mm-hmm. I do think it's it's important for us to at least understand that this is ambiguous. We don't actually know. But we have to remember that all the Gospels are formally speaking anonymous. There is no identification of authorship like we have in Paul's letters. Right. 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 Well, exactly. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, the well, titles, Paul, the titles <laughs> were, were added later. And, right. and based on church tradition. And one of, the, one of my favorite examples of how the, how the titles evolved is that there is, a, there is a title for the book of Revelation that's 97 words long. Ah, exactly. <laughs> so basically the, the titles tended to be part of the church tradition right. and, and, and kind of grew as, led, as traditions do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so moving on then, um, we uh, we move into this story about uh, what what uh, Matthew's doing, right? Yeah. This so tax collector story. Matthew's gospel then introduces the story, which is shared across the synoptic tradition by saying, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collection station, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. That's verse 9. And in the larger context of Matthew's narrative of Jesus' ministry, this is one more demonstration of Jesus' authoritative word, um, Jesus' authoritative word in chapter 8 powerfully affects the calming of the storm. Mm-hmm. In chapter That's 9, right. it affects the forgiveness of sins. And here, it affects repentance and discipleship on the part of even one who was a tax collector. Mm-hmm. And we should not miss that in Matthew's gospel, and only in Matthew, the word telonase is found on the lips of Jesus as a pejorative term. There are two places where this happens. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, if you greet only those who greet you, you know, how are you any different from the tax collectors and the heathen or the, mm-hmm. or the, the, um, the pagans? Uh, and it's, uh, it, unfortunately, we have another problem there because most English Bibles translate the word ethnikos, uh-huh. which is probably best translated as pagan. Right. Uh, as if it were ethnos, Gentile. Oh, and I see. so, so oh, it's wow. confusing in the English language because you run across this this passage in Matthew five forty six. You know, uh, how are you any better than a tax collector or a Gentile? And you think, oh, wait, wow. wait, no, Gentiles are supposed to be good. Yeah. And, and the same thing is true in Matthew eighteen seventeen, and, and when it talks about church uh, church discipline, if. Um, if your brother sins against you, go to him. If if you won't listen, take two or three with you. If you won't listen, go to the church. And if you won't listen, then treat him like a tax collector and a pagan is what it says. Ethnikos right. in the in the in the Greek. But unfortunately, many English Bibles translate that Gentile, which I think is very confusing. I think it is too, and but, that's a, that's an, it's one of those kind of important. Um, Distinctions, yeah. Distinctions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and, but, but the other thing is, is we have to remember that only in Matthew's gospel does Jesus make these two pronouncements where tax collector is a pejorative term. And, and there are other places, right. obviously, where, where, where the narrative talks about Jesus as associating with tax collectors and sinners, and it's just, 
you know, sort of code for all those who were not accepted mm -hmm. by the religious leadership. Mm -hmm. But Jesus actually uses the word tax, the name tax collector, Mm -hmm. you know, um, in a pejorative way. And that's kind of, that's kind of strange to hear. And Mm -hmm. I don't think we're, we're, I don't think we should read too much into it. We just be, we should just be aware that that only happens in Matthew's gospel. Oh yeah. That's, that's interesting makes you wonder about the author it mm-hmm. makes you wonder about the community too a mm-hmm. little bit mm-hmm. um and specifically although i mean at least roman history it's right i mean right why the tax collectors are the ones that have to pay themselves they out of notorious what notorious for corruption yeah, yeah of what yeah. they get so they're gonna charge a lot um so they can you know take off what they need for themselves and the roman yep. government was particularly greedy themselves too yep. so yep. So we're, we're left then to assume that Jesus' call has had its effect on Matthew because immediately we find Jesus sitting at dinner in the house and with many tax collectors and sinners. And again, we've run across that phrase, tax collectors mm-hmm. and sinners, as, as just sort of code for those who were considered to be outside the parameters of proper Jewish practice by the religious leaders. And so it's not surprising when, Jesus, when Matthew reports that the Pharisees complained to Jesus' disciples, note, to the disciples and not Jesus himself, <laughs> which I find it interesting. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners in Matthew 9, 11? Matthew, Matthew's gospel once again goes straight to Jesus' authoritative and powerful word. Mm-hmm. Um, in Matthew 12, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, this was a well-known proverb in the culture of the day, both in the Hellenistic world and in the Jewish mm-hmm. world. And Davies and Allison cite a number of examples. So you might think, well, is this, is this proverb part of Jesus' authoritative and powerful word? Well, maybe. Or you might think that Jesus' authoritative and powerful word begins with his instruction to go and learn what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, in Matthew 9.13, citing Hosea 6.6. 6. And I would be inclined to see that as being Jesus, what Jesus really has to say about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the point here was not whether Jesus was rejecting the sacrificial system. A lot of people get hung up on that. And as in the original context of Hosea, the problem is the people have not been true to God. Right. That's what's going on in Hosea. Right. And so Hosea says, I desire mercy, which is in the Hebrew is hesed, hesed. which mm-hmm. is loyal, faithful covenant love in response right. to God's loyal, faithful covenant love, right? Mm-hmm. And the knowledge of God. So I desire, I desire hesed rather than sacrifice. I right. desire the knowledge of God, knowing God truly, right. rather than the, any whole burnt offerings. Now, now, Matthew doesn't cite the last part, but I think it's important to see that in the original context of Hosea, you know, the, the point is that the people, um, they, they, they're, they're bringing their offerings and their sacrifices, but their, their, their hearts their really are not right, aligned with God. Right, exactly, exactly. And, and in fact, the, 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 the fact that elias, the word Greek mm-hmm. word elias, which is, is, is commonly used in the Septuagint as a translation for the Hebrew hesed. I wondered about that. Okay. Yeah, that's uh-huh. very common in the, in the Septuagint. Um, I think we might see that almost as more akin to um, loving God with all your heart by loving your neighbor as yourself. Okay. And, and so you might see it almost as a kind of a functional equivalent of agape. Mm, you know, in the New Testament, agape kind of plays right. that role. We're to right. love God and we're to love our neighbor. Right. In, in, in the Septuagint, Elias, 
mercy sort of plays that role. Okay. And so, you know, here, the Pharisees, they criticize Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners, and they've missed the right. mercy, the you know the genuine and consistent love for God, right, as expressed by deeds of justice and compassion toward others, or or loving others, mm-hmm. especially toward the least. And so, um, you know, they've they've, you know, they're they're all wrapped up in in how religious and pious they are, their own piety and the practice of their own piety, but they've missed the point of what it means to truly know God. Yeah. And so Jesus declare concludes by declaring, "I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." And again, this is I think this is part of Jesus' authoritative mm-hmm. and powerful word. I this is brilliant, and I I like how we have these words here and these descriptors, but we also have the story that supports this. Mm-hmm. And and that's, so it's like, it's this drawing example of, I'm going to show you what I mean. I'm mm-hmm. going to show you what it means to be a follower of God yeah. within the context of these stories. Well, cool. and, and he says, you know, he, he says to them, um, go and learn what this means. Yeah. Now we got to remember who he's talking to. He's exactly. talking to Pharisees exactly. who, you know, as a sect, they devoted all their life to the study and practice of the, the scripture, right? Right. And right. so they would have known right. this passage very well. They would have known Hosea. Exactly. And they oh, yes, would have yes, known yes, yes. the context. They would have known that Hosea chapter 6, 6 was a rebuke of the people for their unfaithfulness right. toward God. Right. And they would have caught that Jesus was saying basically, hey, you've missed the point as well, you know? Exactly. <laughs> and so um, um, I think we have to understand, we have to presuppose that the Pharisees caught all of the, um, all the underlying context from the Hebrew Bible that, that Matthew just doesn't really elaborate on. They would have heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so... On to this next pericope then, which it's kind of jumps then to right. these stories with these women. Yeah, and and so the, the the lectionary selection does skip Jesus saying about an old patch on a new garment and new wine in old wineskins, which by the way I found is only on on used on Epiphany eight in year B, which if you know your lectionary calendar, you know that that rarely happens. Easter has to fall really late for us to have an epiphany eight. I was telling Alan, I know I've heard a sermon on it. So, you know, it has come up and I, um, but so something that uh, not very common if you're following no, the that's lectionary. Right. And so basically the lectionary goes to Matthew's version of the raising of the leader's daughter and the healing of the woman suffering from the hemorrhage. And right away, we can see shifts that Matthew has made uh, from the account in Mark. First, it is a leader, Archon, mm-hmm. not a leader of the synagogue, not an archisunagogon. Now, unfortunately, the new RSV and other prominent English translations translate Matthew 9.18 as if it were archisunagogon. Interesting. Yeah, because the the the, the good Why news. Why would they tra- do that? 
Well, obviously, it's it's the it's the same it's the same passage, so they're harmonizing. Yeah. Oh my goodness! It's the the Good News translation, the New Century version, the New American Standard Bible, and one of the things I like about the New American Standard is that when they add something to the translation, they put it in italics, uh-huh. so you know it, right? Right. The NIV, Jeez. the revi- the the New Revised Standard Version, and the New Living Translation. All right. I mean, think about how many people are reading the NIV, the New almost, Revised Standard uh, Version, and the New Living Translation, is. right? So who's not translating it this way? What's well, this? the new RSV updated version changes back, right? What about like the CEB or... The or... CEB translates it ruler. Interesting. Um, um, the English Standard Version, which is also fairly common okay. these days, translates okay. it ruler. But this is the tradition of the Geneva Bible, the King James Bible, the right, American right. Standard Version, and the Revised Standard Version. Yes. They all use ruler. Now, the Phillips Version, which is an older paraphrase, the Message, the New American Bible, which is a Catholic Bible, uh, the CEV, and um, uh, Tom Wright's New Testament for Everyone say, all say official. Yeah, I'll o- say official. Official, interesting. So it's kind of strange that they, they do this. And I mean, okay, so a lot of people, and I, it was funny, I was reading in Davies and Allison's commentary, and even though they they recognize that it's Archon and not Archisunagogon, they still assume that this was just another official of the synagogue, a Jewish official. Whereas, you know, an Archon could have been anybody. right. Mm-hmm. I mean, a, 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 an official could have been a Jewish official, uh, could have been a, a Greek official, could have been Roman. a Roman official. Mm-hmm. You know, in Matthew's gospel, it's not specified. So, and, and you know, um, Dean Boring suggests there may be some, some logic to the fact that Matthew's gospel and Matthew's written to Matthew's community with his history of tension with the Jewish synagogue might have uh, not wanted to hear a story about right? a, a ruler of a synagogue, given the tension between them. Mm-hmm. Now, secondly, uh, one of the big changes here is that the daughter is not just at the point of death, which is what Mark 5.23 says, but rather she has already died. And, you know, when we looked at this passage in Mark, we talked right. about the tension right. that Mark created with his version because she was at the point of death and he was trying to get yeah. her to come and then... You have this interruption with the woman with the hemorrhage, mm-hmm. and then the messengers come and say, your daughter's yeah. died. Why trouble the master anymore? Right. And he says, you know, um, uh, don't be afraid, only believe. Right. And, and so there's all this narrative tension in, in Mark's gospel that's just eliminated by the fact that in Matthew's gospel, the daughter's already died. Right. When, when, right. when the official approaches Jesus. That all, and, 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 you know, it also, though, it also changes the nature of the request yes, that right. this father is making from one of healing, right. which was save my life, which to, was which was what you find in, in Mark to one of specifically asking Jesus to raise his daughter from the dead. Wow. Yeah. And again, I think we can see in, in, in Matthew's gospel, then again, a reflection of that post Easter faith in the risen and living Lord. You know, he is the one who has already conquered death. And so it makes sense in that setting of, of the church, um, recognizing that Jesus has, has, you know, has already been, <laughs> he's already long been crucified, long been raised, long ascended to the right hand of God. And this is something that, that is just simply a part of their faith. And so then this story becomes a way to affirm that. And, and it's, it's as if the, the official approaches Jesus from the perspective of, 
he's the living one he's the risen one already right. you know right, so you right, have a right. little bit of mixing of the of the of the situations of yeah. you know the the what this story was about in the life of Jesus and what this story was about in the life of the early church mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm, definitely Okay, so, so then, then we, in the middle of this, we but we still have the woman with the hemorrhage. Right, mm-hmm. right, and so then then we move on to the to Matthew's version of the healing of the woman with the hemorrhage, and we see changes here as well. Uh, as in Mark's gospel, she says to herself, if only I touch his cloak, all will be made well. And we talked at the time, you know, was this magical thinking. Right. And, and instead of Jesus seeming to have healed her automatically with power that came from him without his conscious knowledge. And we remember right. in Mark's gospel, he asked even out loud, who touched my cloak? And the disciples are like, what are you talking about? There are people all around you, you know? Right. Um, in Matthew's version, though, Jesus knows her inner dialogue. Yeah. He he knows right. what she's saying and thinking and so he turns to her and says she, she doesn't have to come to him and confess. Right. He turns to her and says, "Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well." And again, the focus is on the powerful effect of Jesus' authoritative word to heal this woman. Wow. So And so, is, you know, it, I mean, it's just it's 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 just a different it's a different, it's a different take emphasis. on it. Yeah, it is, it's a different it emphasis. And it, it does take out kind of that, that magical sense of the cloak. And it, I mean, mm-hmm. it, but it gives, it really emphasizes the divinity of Christ, I think, too. Well, and the other thing is it shifts the focus to Christ and away from the faith of the individual. Yeah, that's right. Because, because you know, when you, when, you, when you saw this, when we saw this, when we see this phrase in the gospel tradition before, the focus was as much on the faith of the individual right. as on the power of Jesus. And here, all the focus is on the, uh, the powerful and authoritative word of Jesus to right. affect healing. So, um, and some of the other things, though, I mean, we've talked about that that are left out, that are left out here as well. Yep, that's right. Uh, Matthew's version of Jesus raising of the girl to life lacks lacks this emphasis on Jesus' word, which I find ironic. You know, we're all talking about how this whole section of Matthew's gospel focuses on the authoritative word of Jesus. Well, Matthew omits the command that Jesus gives her in Mark's version in Mark uh, 541, taking her by the hand. He said to her, Talita kum, which means little girl, get up. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's, it's weird that that was a detail he chose to leave out because supposedly his focus is all about, you know, the, the powerful word of Jesus. But nevertheless, the focus does remain on Jesus, the resurrected and living one who has from the perspective of Matthew's gospel and from the perspective of the community it was addressed to already conquered death right right and so again i think we see that this story functions as a witness to the saving act of god in christ through the lens of the life death and resurrection of jesus as as we mm-hmm. talked about when we mm-hmm. began um our session you know that quoting from gene boring right and so ultimately how does this conclude how does matthew conclude? well it concludes also in a very different way from mark's gospel because matthew tells us that the report of this spread through all the district and so unlike Mark's gospel, where secrecy is important and Jesus strictly ordered them not to say anything, in Matthew's gospel, the importance of this mm-hmm. and other acts of Jesus in his Galilean ministry is that they serve to spread the good news of the kingdom of God. Interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to take a turn looking at how the Reformers deal with this passage. And, wow, surprise, surprise, they're going to deal with it in light of their theological convictions. Yeah. And uh, so right, <laughs> we, right. we haven't seen that before, have right. we? Right. <laughs> That's how they do it. And, yep. so, and it's no surprise that these um, are examples of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is not in the unwavering faith of these individuals that they talk about this, but rather that the faith that God has in them. So that's kind of a twist. Mm. It reminds me of the story of the mustard seed where they needed only a little faith for God to heal them. So mm-hmm. it's this kind of, it really reminds me of uh, that, that there's still this, this action of God mm-hmm. um, that God working in them that becomes more right. of their focus here. Right. Um, so let's um, let's look at, at, at Matthew, of course. Now, all of the reformers, as I said before, assume that Matthew called here is the one and the same as the gospel writer um, in terms of, of this scripture. But I think it is also important for their interpretation as well because it gives them a picture of how one sinner um, contributes to the fullness of the faith. And so, in looking at the Reformation commentaries, we find that they def- we we find that they define a difference between the action of sin and the one who does the action. In other words, just as works can't bring about salvation, neither can works alone be the cause of condemnation. Mm. Kind of interesting. Yeah, um, there is a clear sense that when that when the heart is moved towards God, that God can cure the sick. So, and there's some examples. Thomas Cramner, for example, and remember, he's the Archbishop of Canterbury, then the one who defended Henry VIII in his divorce. Um, And Cramner's known um, for the Book of Common Worship Mm -hmm. that he did, very Mm -hmm. famous for that, probably his greatest contribution. He's eventually um, arrested, by the way, because under under Mary, um, Bloody Mary, um, uh, reign and and put to death. But anyway, he well, makes of course she was Catholic, right? Exactly. <laughs> but he makes a distinction between the uh, unrepentant Pharisee who continues to wallow in sin and the tax collector whose heart is turned to God. So for Thomas Cranmer, it is the evil that comes from the heart that is the problem, not the action. Mm. So there's this this kind of difference. Mm. Likewise, William Bridge, he's a he's another is a Puritan minister. He's a little bit later on has the same position. He says that Christ ate with those who were not sensible of their sins. In other words, Jesus came to those who, in His presence, would be awakened to their sin and through Him desire to desist sinning instead of those who simply live into the sin. Um, and I think the position of both of these individuals makes sense within the context of the Puritan tradition, right? Yeah. There is a sense that once people are aware of their sinful nature, that they will live lives parallel with their lives in Christ. If they are fully aware of their sinful action and continue to do it, then they are not really followers. And, you know, I, when I read this, it just struck me as incredibly idealistic on their part. Absolutely. You know? and, and, and how many people, I mean, really do they see as falling into that category? And how many people must they see as either witches or um, I, I, what, what was the equivalent for a man who was who was unrepentant? I don't know, you know, whoremonger or something. I don't know, right, you know I'm not drunkard or something. Right, right. You know, because because I mean, the Puritans were were infamous for their focus on people's actions. Right. Yeah, it's almost <laughs> like it it comes full circle, right? That there's this this whole space of welcoming those who sin and forgiving sins but then once it's done there's this expectation that they 
their behavior then is visible um, that they've conformed. And so you come right back to almost the same works righteousness that you started well, with. Well, and, and a, per, a perfectionism, you know, that, that, that exactly. you know, once you're saved, you are perfected and you can't sin anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's that's a part of it. So uh, you can see this is a real a real problem, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's the... One of the biggest problems with with the reformers, you know, and um, many, I think they assumed is, is once once they're really fully open to the grace of Christ that they'll naturally do this. We mm. saw this with Luther. We see it with Calvin. When they don't, then they have means to force that behavior, which then is like the opposite of what they thought they were going to do. Right. But by right. forcing the behavior, then. I think in some well, way it becomes back an emphasis on works. Yeah, it, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's just fascinating. So it, it's a it's a it's a it's a study between faith and practice. While the emphasis of the Protestant Reformation, particularly at the beginning of the Reformation, is on faith, there is an expectation that faith will cause a certain type of behavior. And as I said, Luther, of course, believed that correct behavior would naturally stem from one who proclaimed the faith. But, and of course, our human means to measure this is to define what good Christian behavior is and then to see if people abide by it. So this becomes part of that Puritan position. If we are good, faithful Christians, we should not be engaged in X, Y, Z. And for them, theater, drinking, dancing. All external things. External things. (laughs) Exactly. If we know God and continue to sin, then we are not really saved. (laughs) And this kind of mentality returned the church to the same type of works righteousness issues that plagued the church, early church. So, yeah. but they weren't aware of it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I think if we really got down to it and we had this conversation between the Roman Catholics and the, and the Protestant church, everyone is thinking we, we want to transform the heart sure. and the heart to be transformed in Christ. And therefore what you do, right. your good works right. are automatically going to respond to your faith. Well, and I, I mean, I have said many times that, that, uh, in, in biblical, you know, in the biblical witness, uh, true knowledge of God results in a change of, of life, you know, mm-hmm. or, or true faith results in a change right. of life. So another person who discusses this is Wolfgang Musculus. And we've, he's a German, but he's a Reformed theologian. And he really tries to get at the heart of the difference. And he emphasizes not the action itself, but the spirit that the true works are those that stem from within, such as compassion and goodness. Mm-hmm. And this, says Musculus, comes from true faith, which by love is eff- efficacious and about a love which consists not in words, but in action. Then two, about true compassion, which has this trait, that it rushes immediately mm. to help those in need. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of beautiful Surely. to think about. Another theme is that God calls unexpected people into ministry. And here we come across a woman um, who is not in a position of the system like the tax collector, but rather as someone completely outside of culture. Um, what the reformers draw out here is that Jesus indicates that it is not her act of touching him that healed her, but her faith. Well, and again, I'm, I'm thinking they're influenced a lot by the Gospel of Matthew here because that's what you read in Matthew's version, as we just discussed, right? Exactly. But in exactly. Mark's version, it's very different. Right, right, exactly. Like the tax collector, the emphasis is not on the doing as it is on the condition of the heart. Mm. So Luther also deals with this theme, but divides them into different categories. He says, there's two kinds of people. 
First, there are those who are so destitute, who are so sick and poor and timid, that they have no way to be helped, and they give up in despair. And so Jesus basically reaches down to those people. Um, Christ comes to them. Um, They have been condemned by a reality that they cannot control within a system that scorns them, and Christ lifts them out of this reality. Mm. Um, The second, then, though, is like the daughter of the ruler. They're functioning within the system, even successfully, but they learn of their humanity that there are limitations, and they come to God when they realize the limitations of the world. Um, and what what astonishes me is that they focus on the daughter of the ruler because she, she doesn't say anything, you uh-uh. know, and I think the only thing she does even in Mark's gospel is when she gets up, she, she waits on them maybe, but... You know, the 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 if we're talking about someone who learns about humanity and limitations and come to God when they realize the limitations of their world, I mean, it would be the father, right? Right, I would think so. Yeah, yeah. Why did why do they focus this on the daughter? I don't understand. I, I'm not sh- I'm not sure either, except that she is the one that's healed, right? Right, right of course. Um, I think that's what they're emphasizing here. Mm-hmm. Um, so they all under these folks undergo a transformation of the heart. And they now believe in Christ. I, th- I think they're reading a, quite a bit into to the story about uh, into the into the daughter's place in I, the story. I, I think so too. And of course, I did not. And to to my, I'm I'm looking at an English translation, so mm-hmm. I am not actually sure what the German says right, here. Right. Um, I'm trusting the translators, so you know maybe maybe there's more to it. There there are times when that is that that right. bites you. That's right, true. Right, exactly. So. Um, for Luther, this is a reminder that there's nothing we can do that pleases God that would bring us to grace and life. Rather, pure grace is given to us. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, the real question in my mind is the origin of faith. And this gets us into, into some that pretty deep theological stuff. But let me, let me at least draw out a couple ideas. For Calvin, grace is irresistible at least for those who are predestined. That's super important, right? If one is not falling in line with God, then that would imply that they are not of the chosen. And that's where we get the double predestination. Mm -hmm. I think in this doctrine that Calvin was really assuming that this would be a position of comfort. And I've mentioned that before, that even in asking the question would be one of those that would suggest that you are assured of your salvation, mm-hmm. right? That you have this knowledge of God. Well, and surprise, surprise, for Calvin, the origin of faith is in the sovereignty of God. Exactly, yeah. exactly. The modern world really changed this assumption, right? So in our modern world, we start to really dig into the skepticism and the, and, and, and the fear of those who don't believe. But for Luther, even though he does not believe in works righteousness, he would argue that grace is resistible and that a human in their sinfulness can resist God. So a little different. So for Calvin, this argument would challenge God's sovereignty. Sure. For Luther, this would be a situation by which God allows for the human to resist. For example, in Luther's small catechism, he writes, the free will from its own natural powers not only cannot work or concur in working anything for its own conversion, righteousness, and salvation, nor follow believe or assent to the Holy Ghost, who through the gospel offers him grace and salvation, but from its innate, wicked, rebellious nature, it resists God and his will hostily, unless it be enlightened and controlled by God's spirit. So in a very different way, faith originates from God. (laughs) 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They're both on the same page, right? Faith originates with God, but how how it works exactly is different. Exactly. So, and I think to make sense of these theological nuances, we have to place them again into the context of the 16th century. We have to remember that the Roman Catholic Church focused almost entirely on works righteousness and that individuals within the church believed that if they performed certain actions, they could be saved. Faith was much more about practice, which allowed the church to maintain not only religious control, but also social control over the population. Luther and Calvin rejected this. I do think that the reason stemmed from religious conviction of a church that had lost its soul, which we can definitely see. But in an era where church and state were not divided, they also saw how power of the church and its actual ability to control people. Yeah. So they believed that if they could teach right doctrine, that if people's hearts were truly changed, that the church and the, it would change the church and the subsequent secular power, and that would be governed through grace and not works, and it would naturally create a beautiful society of where love of neighbor reigned. For example, idealized in Calvin's Geneva. Hmm. That's, I mean. That's quite a that's quite a jump, it seems to me, in terms of a theological assumption. You know that that um, if we preach right doctrine that is heard rightly by people who are influenced by the Holy Spirit or by God, and and therefore their lives are changed rightly, then society will function rightly. Right? Well, isn't that isn't that beautiful though? I well, mean, it is, but but I mean, I think I mean, I think I that's my vision of the kingdom of God in the ultimate, you right. know, in the eschaton. But uh, that they that they saw themselves as being able to affect that by right doctrine here right. and now. Right. I, I will say, you know, I think back to the early part of the 20th century, and I, I don't know that the way church life functioned in this culture was much different because, you know, you had, I mean, you look at pictures, I look at the pictures of the history of this church and you see like all the Sunday school people with their Bibles, you know, Mm -hmm. standing out in front of the church or, you know, and, and it's like, you know, there is this kind of um, control over society because, you know, the norms right. that are established in church are, are, are applied to everybody. And, and right, you right. know, there's this expectation that you're going to conform. Right. And, and <laughs> you've, you've hit on something, too. And I didn't mention in while well, I was writing this, but both Luther and Calvin, all, all these folks are still coming out of kind of the idealized vision of Christendom, mm-hmm. right? Right. They, <laughs> well, you know, in a sense, they're thinking that it, that if they preach the gospel rightly, they're going to they're going to bring in the kingdom on earth. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that every true Christian, everyone will see the truth of the church, and they'll conform to this. Now they realize this doesn't happen in reality. I guess. It kind of does in Calvin's Geneva. However, it's so tightly controlled by this consistory and by the the disciplinary arm that, you know, in fact, that's been, I'll I'll mention here in a minute, that's been one of the emphases of historians. It's like this wasn't an idealized place for many because it was so strict. Um, It was was great for those who conformed, for those who didn't, didn't, you know, it it wasn't. Right, so it kind of has that, but... But, you know, they're both seeing this, 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 I, I think there's always this temptation to visualize this Christian utopia, mm-hmm. which this kingdom, this perfect kingdom. Um, and I think modern folks, 
well, first of all, we, we're so much more ecumenical and we have so much more, so many more religions outside of, I mean, even though they knew some Jews, they really didn't know any Muslims. I mean, mm-hmm. it was kind of a, it was kind of still a very Christian society. And even those Jewish folks lived outside of town in some kind of ghettoization. So it's, it's just not the same space. Right, and right. it doesn't, we look at these people like, ah, that doesn't make sense. And, but I think there's people that see the world this way today still. There are. Of course there um, are. Right? <laughs> Francis but, Schaeffer was, was a, a 20th century philosopher exactly. who, who, who advocated that kind exactly. of thing. Exactly. But for most of us, we're realizing that our dialogue is going to be with people that aren't part of Christendom and that will not be part mm. of Christendom. And we have to understand how are we good neighbors? How are we good Christian witnesses in action to folks that, that never become part of the church? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, I did have on here just a minute about thinking about Calvin's Geneva because in today's world, we are hearing it's really tyrannical almost, ultra strict, and there's even books that, you know, Geneva's tyranny. Um, I don't I don't disagree against our modern concepts of, of governance, right? Um, and but in, in terms of also our modern-day democracies, but this is the 16th century. Right. Um, and... Um, um, it, it seems to me that when we look at it in terms of the 16th century and we can pull out some of the things that were beautiful, for example, um, um, th- one of the newer books I found, Social Discipline in Calvin's Geneva by Jeffrey Watt, really talks about, you know, looks through the consistory's records and all the crazy things they went after and the people they went after and, you know, the boys skipping their church classes to go play ball and how they got in trouble in front of the consistory and some of those types of things. But when you look at the impact of Genevan society on today's values of family, nuclear mm-hmm. family, the raising of children, raising of children in schools, right? Mm-hmm. Expect, ex- expectations of marital fidelity. I think you get a little more positive view of Geneva mm-hmm. um, when um, people come together to, to serve the family. Um, and I found... Um, Robert Kingdon and, and John Witt's um, Sex, Marriage, and Family and John... John Calvin's Geneva, and they're the ones that that help us see. Gosh, these are some of the things, the positive things that have sure. come out of this. Sure. So, um, so if we look back at a time, we might regard Gene, Geneva as having the same type of works culture that um, Calvin was initially fighting against. But I, th- I think at least the theological underpinnings otherwise and mm-hmm. ones that would equip future generations to ask the question as to how the Spirit is working now rather than adopting the status quo then. Yeah, thanks, Christy. Yeah, you're welcome. Hi, friends. We're back, and we were really thinking about talking about where faith comes from, and I think that's an important to talk about, particularly in this world where we have so many people that don't, believe um they don't claim they have a faith in anything so i think um i think that's a good starting spot to talk about where well where does faith in in christ start with where does faith in god start with well and you know i'm thinking not necessarily theologically with uh, luther and calvin but i'm thinking from matthew's perspective and from the perspective of matthew's community um you know we were talking using when we were discussing my segment we were talking about how you know, the, the, the telling of these stories, these were stories they would have been familiar with. These were stories they would have heard for decades. Mm-hmm. 
And and so, um, um, you know, someone who had been a part of the early Christian church, say, all along, they would have heard these stories right. throughout their life. And, and um, you know, so when Matthew's gospel comes along, they might have heard some different nuances, but they would have been familiar with the basic story. Right. And again, I think, you know, we, as we talked about, it's kind of like the reading of, of Scripture in our worship today is that hearing the stories that we've heard so many times is, is an, a, an, an affirmation, an encouragement, a validation of our faith. But it also becomes then the source of faith right, right. for those who maybe have never right. heard. And, and the same thing, I think, the other aspect of Matthew's uh, perspective on this is that, you know, it's Jesus and right. his powerful and authoritative word that creates the faith, that creates the response. Not only is his powerful and authoritative word able to calm right. the storm, he's able to forgive sins, right. but he's also right. able to call forth the faith of whoever this tax right. collector was, Levi or Matthew, and, 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 and so that he becomes a disciple of Jesus. Right. And, and, you know, I think we can say that it was even his, his person and perhaps even the the um, reports about what he had done and said that drew the woman with the hemorrhage to him right, right, right. for healing and that and that that that's where she got right. her faith was from the reports right. that she had heard and then the same thing is true about the ruler uh, the, the the official right. who comes you know he is aware of who Jesus is well i i think that actually Calvin and Luther would agree with you. Mm -hmm. It was absolutely in a preached word that people came to faith, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't, you know, Calvin says, if you don't hear the word, you may have inklings of God's existence, but you don't really have faith. I think, I think the deeper question is, though, who hears the word and responds and who hears the word and does not respond? Mm -hmm. And that's, I, that's where that theological nuance comes from. Why do some people hear the word and they are drawn to it and others... No. And, and you know, I, I get I get where they're trying to come up with a theological answer for that. Mm -hmm. You know, is it irresistible grace? Is right. it predestination? Is it right. free will? But I think in my experience, there are also a lot of practical reasons why one person responds and another person doesn't. Mm -hmm. You know, um, we don't know, <laughs> you know, what, what, what li you know, life histories people bring to the preaching of the word with them when they come and hear us. Good point. Well, it, it reminded me a little bit of a, kind of a, a theoretical um, theology versus a practical one, mm -hmm. right? And I do think we get so caught up with these nuances of what does it, is it because implanted with grace first or not, that we miss the importance and significance of we must continue to preach and act mm -hmm. out the gospel. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people... You know, it's, wait, I'm hanging out with Christians. Wait, Christians are being nice to me. Hey, I want to be a part of that club. <laughs> right, right. But it may take time. It may take I, a lot you know, of time. I, I, right? I've, told, I've told the story, I think, before that when I lived in Houston, um, one of my friends was an atheist. Right. A and yet, ironically, he always wanted to talk about faith whenever uh, yes, I saw yes. him. And, you know, I never brought it up. He always brought it up with me. And um, finally, one time, um, you know, he asked me, we were having this discussion, and I just finally kind of summarized my faith. You know, I believe that there, that there is a loving God, and this loving God is going to make all things right in the end, mm -hmm. basically. Right. And, and um, he, he just, I mean, he looked at me very sincerely and said, I don't believe that. 
And so I asked him what he believed. Mm -hmm. And he basically, you know, talked about the importance of treating people with compassion and, mm -hmm. and, and respect and things like that. But, um, you know, um, knowing me, his experience of me, you know, we, we had a friendship over a number of years, 10 right. years probably. And, um, you know, he did not come to faith. Right. Part of his story was that he'd been raised in the Catholic Church. And, um, you know, sometimes a person's religious upbringing can be an obstacle to faith. Right. And I don't know if that was the case with him, but um, I think he was one of these people that, you know, there are some people who are, who are so idealistic about, about their view of things, and they see so much wrong in the world mm -hmm. that it is just almost impossible for them to right. believe that there is right. a loving God because, right. it, you know, they think if God is so loving, then why doesn't he do something about right. it? Right, right. And so th that's just like one example right. of one person. And I think, you know, there are infinite variables absolutely. like that. Ab absolutely. And that's, you know, that's some people will seek and look after, and some people have to find in their world. Now, for my world, I, I guess, and I've I've always said this. I've kind of always lived my life on a Pascal's wager. At least that's how it mm -hmm. brought me to faith because I needed, I wanted to, to my life to form into a place of faith. Even if I had lots and lots of questions, even if maybe my questions were so much that I wasn't sure I believed, there was still a framing that a world of faith had of hope. Mm -hmm. that encouraged me to reach sure. out and love, to be kind to people. Yeah. So that faith didn't have that kind of pure conviction. And I think people that question often wonder if they're truly people of faith. And I'd say, yeah. I tell my young people, most of these adults here are in some, have some level of questioning. Absolutely. But they're here because there's a support of a community, because they're called to reach out and love to others, because mm -hmm. they because they trust that they are sent so, somehow, even if they can't define God as well as they want to, they felt that they are sent and that they are claimed. And that's part of that sanctification process, right? By mm -hmm. which you start to, um, start to, that then what your questions then fall away and they become part of your reality. This, mm -hmm. this, this relationship with people, which then, in the end, I think, draws you to the relationship with God. Right, right. And, and, and you know, you hope that that's what's going to happen. And, I, you know, I'm think, I think about the parable of the sower. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, so, some of the seeds fall on the path and they're devoured. Some of the seeds fall in the rocky ground and they wither away. Some of the seeds fall in the th thorny ground and they're choked out. Some of the seeds fall on, on the good soil. Fertile soil. Uh, mm -hmm. but, but, you know, I, I don't think, I, I don't, I don't want to say, well... Uh, you know that this that we can therefore divide people and their responses to Jesus into you know stony ground and the and the and the rocky ground and the thorny ground. Mm -hmm. I, I really want to say you know this is an encouragement to keep sowing seeds and to leave the results in God's hands because mm -hmm. I think you know if if faith as a response to God's uh, love is is something that God's grace alone can elicit then then I, i'm com i'm content to leave that in god's hands whether it's in right. this life or whether it's when someone comes face to face with, with christ yeah i agree and i think well and that provides us to with this hope of universal salvation mm -hmm. 
as opposed to looking at somebody and saying, well, they're not conforming to this pattern right. like, like our smart reform. Like the Puritans. Right. And, <laughs> or like Geneva. Right. Exactly. And, so and you must be a witch. You must be a witch. <laughs> and and, and I, I think there's a temptation to do that today. You know, I, I see... Um, I see groups of people that, that, well, we believe, and because we've conformed to this, and you all haven't. So you all really aren't in our club. And that bothers me. Oh, that yeah. bothers me a lot. I, I mean, I've, uh, you know, I was in, I was in the Baptist world, as you know, for 25 mm -hmm. years. And, and there are some wonderful people in the Baptist world still today. Yeah. Some of my best friends when I was going through seminary, still working in the Baptist world today. And they're, they're wonderful people of faith, but there were people as there are in the Presbyterian oh, world yeah. in all, in who, all places, who right? essentially their, their version of the good news is if you look like me, if you dress like me, if you talk like me, if you act like me, then you're good. And if you don't, well, right. you, you got no chance. Right. You're going to hell. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, you know, that's the good news, right? Well, and, <laughs> what's and good about that? <laughs> there's something about like thinking like prosperity gospel. If if life is easy, then I'm obviously in. You know the crowd, and I think the challenge, and I, that's a very unfortunate way to go about your world. But I think when we all acknowledge that everyone's on a journey, mm -hmm. and life is hard, I don't care who you are, there are yeah. there are always times in life where we stumble, and we come to that knowledge of. I can't do this alone. I can't do this alone. And you trust that I am loved from my very beginning. Mm -hmm. You trust that. I mm -hmm. think that brings a very different kind of faith. It in. does. And I have to remind myself of this all the time, right? Yeah. It, it's very easy to get caught up and why is that person walking you know, in front of my church and not here? Why is this person against my church instead of in it without stopping back and looking life is hard yeah. everyone's on a journey yeah. um everyone needs to start with the, the simplest of i love you for who you are right yeah exactly thanks christy thanks. that's our podcast for today if you heard something that was helpful to you please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us it's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word.